The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration from leaders who are making their visions happen and will set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now here's your host, Kate Ebner. Good morning. This is Kate Ebner, and I'm delighted and really honored to be here today with my guest, Adina Friedman. The New York Times called it a coup for the Carlyle Group when Carlyle hired Adina away from the NASDAQ. Um, for this Baltimore native who makes her home in suburban D.C., it was kind of a no-brainer. This is the part of the world where she lives, and the Carlyle Group was the only company she was interested in working for besides the NASDAQ. It's a great honor to have you here today, Adina, and I'm really looking forward to exploring uh, with for our audience a little bit about who you are and how you've gotten to be in this unbelievably um, strategic and powerful position in the financial sector, and we want to know uh, your vision. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. Uh, I want to just start, Adina, by having you tell us a little bit about your story. Um, you know, today, I think most Americans are so um, tuned in to hearing what's happening on Wall Street, what's happening in the financial sector, and I think it's been such an exciting and volatile time. Um, and and, and I, I know that when I talk to you, um, I, I have had a sense of uh, hopefulness for the future, actually, just in our brief conversations preparing for the show. I'm interested to have you give us a perspective on how that world looks at the moment to you. What do you think is happening in our financial markets? And then we want to hear about you. Well, I do think that the financial markets, I mean, if you look at the uncertainty in the global landscape and the macro environment, um, the financial markets really are just reacting to the fact that there is there is a lot of uncertainty everywhere. Um, and coming out of the recession that we experienced in 2008, 9, and 10, I think that we are um, looking at a world where they're still really cleaning up some of the issues that um, that ex- really existed over, over many years leading up to the crisis. And we're, we're still looking at that cleanup. I think the other thing that that we all can recognize now is that the world is truly interconnected. So so something that's happening in Europe is really not isolated from anything that would happen here or in Asia. Um, And as the emerging markets really become emerged, they become really a a global force that we have to look at in terms of it, those markets also impacting the performance of the United States. So you've got a lot of um, uncertainty in some of those areas, as well as just new interconnectedness that I think people recognize coming through the crisis. In terms of the financial industry generally, the financial industry really does look at that and say, well, how do we, how do we navigate, um, through it? And I think that some of it is still some cleanup and the fact that the government continues to, 
talked through regulation but hasn't um, enforced it yet, I think has made some, has created an uncertain backdrop for the financial industry. And then on top of that, you've got to look at a volatile landscape to navigate through. And of course, that's what makes life very interesting. Um, the financial industry really is an incredibly dynamic, um, very, very, I would say in many cases nimble um, industry that and and it, but it also is is highly dependent on the macro environment. So um, it's it's certainly what make, gets me up in the morning and, and makes my job very interesting. Well, this is an amazing time to be a leader in this industry, and you know I'm, I'm would love to have you tell us a little bit about you and you know your background and and how you got started um, in this field. But let's start at the very beginning. Um, tell us about how you grew up and, and how you got to be in the role you're in. Sure. Well, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, and I went to an all-girls school, um, which I do think had an influence over uh, me as a person. Um, I, I um, then went to Williams College in Massachusetts and then graduated uh, from Williams in 1991, which was during another recession, <laughs> and at that point looked around and said, what is it that I really want to do? And I think that in the end I realized that um, – while college teaches you how to think, it's time for me to learn what to think. And so I went to business school, which was a very practical um, education. I went to Vanderbilt Business School in Nashville, Tennessee. And then upon graduating from Vanderbilt, I ended up working at the NASDAQ uh, stock market, which at the time was headquartered in Washington, D.C. So we settled, my husband and I settled in Washington, and um, and I worked there. And I, I worked at NASDAQ for 18 years um, before leaving to come to Carlisle. So I don't know where you want to start in that spectrum of things, but that's, uh, that's at least the, the general background. Well, thank you. That's a great um, outline, actually. You did that with uh, great efficiency. <laughs> most, most people have trouble laying out the trajectory of their lives, so thank you. Um, I want to start kind of back at the girls' school, I think, and you mentioned that that actually had an influence on you um, go attending a girls' school. Uh, as you were growing up, affected the rest. How so? I think that um, for me at least, and it may not be the case for everyone, but for me, I was lucky enough to have a brother at home, so I certainly had to learn how to deal with boys. But um, but at least in the in the school environment, I felt that it eliminated a lot of distraction, to be honest. And it also allowed me to find a voice for myself. I was never shy or concerned about speaking up and stating my opinion in class. Um, I found that in some ca- in some classes, like math, I really do believe in some cases girls do learn differently than boys, and yet it was by far my favorite subject in, in, in high school. I, I loved math all, actually all the way through. And I think that I just found that I was able to thrive in an environment where there was say, there were fewer distractions, there was a common view of how to learn, and I was able to voice my opinion regularly, frankly, um, in the classroom. Um, and um, as a result, I think once I got to college, I was kind of surprised to see some other very high-achieving young women who entered college but really hadn't found their voice. They were very good at doing the work, but they just were almost afraid to voice their opinion in the classroom. And I think so much of learning is being able to put yourself out there and getting a reaction um, being able to state an opinion, articulate a view is just so much a part of, of learning, especially in college. And I was really surprised to find a lot of 
girls or young women who had gone through a co-ed environment were not willing to do that. And I did feel like I kind of stood out um, because, and I do attribute it to an all-girls education. Yes. You know, years ago, I worked um, for Trinity College here in Washington, which is an all-girls college as well, and um, have many friends from schools like Smith and Wellesley who really speak to this. It's, it's a very empowering experience for girls to have a single-sex education. And particularly, you know, you did this at the high school level, but then you went on to Williams, um, which is a co-ed liberal arts college. What did you study there? Um, I studied political science in college. Um, I, at the time, thought I would want to go and conquer Capitol Hill. Um, so I studied political science. I worked on a campaign, a congressional campaign between one of the, you know, one of my, you know, two of my years in school. And then, uh, between junior and senior year, I actually worked on the Hill, um, for a congressman, um, for a summer. So I did get to experience what it was like there, um, and then realized that perhaps business was the better path for me. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Now, um, you know, so on from from Williams and political science to to getting your MBA, sort of coming out of school at the time of a recession. That recession of what was it back in? Did you say ninety one? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about your um, your comment about um, you know girls school to coed, poli sci to business. You know, it seems like you were making some pretty strategic choices along the way, and, I, and I'm kind of just curious to hear. You know, you, you seem to have an ability, Adina, to, to look at the situation and be decisive about what you're going to do next or why you're going to do it, you know, and what does that come from? Is that, is that self-knowledge that you're tapping into or is it sort of a scan of the environment and a, a decision process? I'm just curious how you make decisions. Sure. Um, well, I have to say I'm um, known for being a bit of a planner. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. So I was already, you know, even I almost ashamed to say in eighth grade, already looking at, well, what would it take to get into the college of my choice? Um, so, wow. um, I just kind of was one of those people who always was looking at the next step and what does it take to get to the next step? It just was, it's kind of ingrained in who I am, I guess. Um, and, um, and so when I, as I was going through, I do think that to be honest, I'm relatively self-aware of my strengths and my weaknesses. Um, as I went through college and took political science, I enjoyed very much the debate aspect of political science. What I found less compelling was more of the philosophical element of political science. Okay, start from scratch, and if you could build a government from scratch, what would it look like? And my view is, well, that doesn't really exist in the real world. You can't really start a government from scratch. You always have to start with something. I was much more practical, let me put it that way, than some of the classroom um, was teaching me. And so I started realizing that really, frankly, as I was going through college, that business is a very practical, um, um, is a very practical profession. And it certainly leverages the skills of being able to articulate an opinion and to be able to put facts behind that opinion and to be able to use analytical skills, which I do feel is one of my strengths, and uh, apply it to something very practical that you can see concrete results from. And I think that as I was going through college, I realized that really was something that I would feel that I, I would just, I would feel better about um, spending my time doing than, you know, frankly, the philosophical element of looking at, at um, politics. So um, I chose that path just because I do think it played to my strengths and it limited some of the weaknesses that I have. Well, 
<laughs> I, I think that's impressive. You know, it's an impressive self-assessment, you know, and I, I think so often we, um, we aren't as clear eyed as you have been about our strength, you know, strengths and weaknesses. And, um, I love to hear you talk about that because I think that will help many people out there who are, you know, in a similar situation and wondering, you know, what do I do with these strengths? And I, I love to hear that blend of strategic thinking and a decision to actually play to your strengths. I remember it was only my sophomore year of college where I realized what my strengths were and decided to drop my Chinese major and actually major <laughs> in English. So anyway, we're going to take a break, Adina. We'll be right back. which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. This is Kate Ebner, and I'm speaking today with Adina Friedman, who is the CFO of the Carlisle Group. Um, Adina has been named as one of the top women in uh, leadership, uh, one of the top women, I think, under 40 of the 40 Under 40 group in Business Week. She's uh, numerous um, moments in the sun. One of my favorite facts about Adina is that while leading uh, the CFO of, of the NASDAQ, she was actually a celebrity in China. And <laughs> uh, she's laughing, but um, there, the NASDAQ has an enormous amount of cachet, and when she would travel and speak, people would line up to get her signature on their business cards. And so, welcome back again, Adina. Um, we were talking before the break about sort of how how your path unfolded and how you made decisions and your your career began to um, take shape. And I'm curious, you know, um, so many smart women enter, enter the professional services or the financial sector, and yet relatively few make it all the way to the top. Um, what do you believe has been the key to your success, Adina? I think that, honestly, the key to my success has been the support structure I have outside of work. Um, I think that I've been blessed with a wonderful family, um, and my husband has been extremely supportive of every opportunity that's been made available to me. Um, and so I think that's the first thing. Um, and we, I can talk more about that. I think secondly, when I first started my career, I worked for um, a man who was just incredibly supportive of me. And he just 
kind of took a chance on me in hiring me and then gave me a lot of different opportunities and a lot of different projects, but also allowed me to have a very flexible work schedule when the children were really young. So I worked um, part-time for about four or five years um, right after the kids were born, and it gave me the ability to balance, have a little bit more of a balance early on, and then right as I was... Been get, I had been. I started getting more opportunities to expand my career, despite the fact I was working part time. My husband decided that he he wanted to go and and work part time, and he was offered an opportunity um, to to do a job share as a, as an attorney. So he flipped into part time mode, and I flipped back into full time mode, and um and so that flexibility early on. Um, as a as a working mom was really critical to kind of being able to stick it out. And I think it is important that companies realize sometimes that it's worth the long-term investment in um, a high-performing person to give them that flexibility in those periods of time in their lives where it is important to have a better balance. Um, and uh, And then I think that for me, you know, I was really lucky to have my husband there. I think for other women, have finding someone who's just very good at tending to the kids gives you the peace of mind to make sure that you can focus when you're at the job and you can focus on home when you're at home and you can focus on work when you're at work. I think the last thing I would say about just being a working mom is technology is a wonderful thing. Um, On the one hand, with your BlackBerry, um, you never stop working. But on the other hand, you can work anywhere if you have a flexible, you know, if you have a flexible manager. And um, I found that it, that made a huge difference in my ability to manage um, both parts of my life. Well, it's good to hear you talk about that. And, and those three things that you mentioned are really are key. I mean, I think that first one is sort of a flexible workplace and then a support system that included your husband who played a really key role as you were raising your young family and then finally technology as a friend instead of a foe right, right. allowing you to <laughs> yeah. work from wherever you are without and and so many people um you know seek exactly what you've just described and also struggle with the boundary setting and the um you know, helping their employer convert over to that understanding about the long-term benefit of retaining people during these stages of life, retaining women in particular. Um, and it sounds like for you, that's worked out. Your children are older now. Is that right? Yes, they're in high school now. So, um, so it, you know, obviously there are different needs, but it certainly, it, it makes it so that it's, it's, um, I have more ability just to focus on work during during the work hours. Um, I think that the one thing I would say also is I really do want to stress that I think that there is an an older, I should say, more traditional mentality that if you're not in the office, you're not working. And I think with working moms, it's really important to, if you have a high-performing person, that you realize that they will get the job done, even if it means going home feeding the kids and getting back online. And um, and that's what I mean by technology. It's just amazing what you can do with remote access. So giving them the benefit of the doubt that if they were high-performing before, they're going to be high-performing after. Uh, it just may mean through a different schedule. Um, and giving them that flexibility, I think they will show a great deal of loyalty to their employer if that's the case because I sure felt that they gave me a chance and um, to, to create that balance. And I really felt that I owed it to them to give me, give them my all for, for many, many years after um, because of that opportunity they've given me. 
You know, I think you're right that tr- the, tr- the benefit in addition to the retention of talented women is, is that loyalty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that is really worth quite a lot. You know, I wonder when I, when I do the work I do uh, about women's leadership and the advancement of women in the workplace, and I look at the numbers, I really see that, um, that the financial industry has woefully few women in senior leadership roles. Uh, why is that? Adina, what does it take to succeed? Um, I, I think that I've probably been really lucky, I guess. Um, I guess I walk into a room and I don't think of myself as a woman. <laughs> I guess I walk into my room and I think of myself in my role, you know, whatever that role has been or is. Um, I don't walk in the room and look and say, oh, I guess I'm the only woman here. You know, it doesn't honestly even cross my mind most of the time. Um, I think that, I think other people have a harder time maybe getting past that. I'm not so sure. Um, I think that also you have to, um, you know, I did talk about that flexibility because I think a lot of women do drop out because the financial industry is a very, very intense, intense industry. Um, there's kind of no easy job on Wall Street, to be honest. So I think that as a result, a lot of women do walk out um, because they just realize the balance isn't there. So if you can create an environment with the balance, I think then you sit there and say, well, why why isn't it that more women aren't advancing through even in a balanced environment? And I think in that particular case, uh, it may just be the personalities that you're working with. But my attitude is I'm here to do a job. I'm not here to be a woman in a job. Um I have to prove myself in my role. It makes no gender makes no difference, and I also kind of had this attitude young because I often was the youngest person in the room too. Was that within the first three minutes of the meeting, if I were speaking, I want them to forget that I'm a woman and forget that I'm younger than they are. So my the content of what I'm saying has to be compelling enough for them to see through the exterior and and look at my, you know, really focus on what I have to say. Um, and I, I realized that that is by far the best way to kind of get yourself mentally over those insecurities that may result from gender or age instead of just, and, and, real, and really just focus on what you're there to do. That sounds very, very wise and a smart strategy for you developmentally as well. I think when we have that kind of a self-mandate, then you know what you need to do, you know what you're there to do, and you're concentrating on bringing valuable uh, input into the discussion right. rather than uh, who, who I am, you know, in this moment or how people see me. It seems like that that's a very focusing thought that you just offered us. Yeah, I, I really think that's critical. You do have to be self-aware enough to realize that you have to force. I mean, I did have to be conscious of that actually early on, and then it just kind of became natural over time. Yeah, well, you had already, it sounds like, built a muscle for speaking up <laughs> back in the girls' school. <laughs> you, you, you had some comfort with taking a position and, and, and speaking. And, you know, I, I um, just this week was talking to a group of leaders about, um, you know, using your voice, using your voice, using your seat at the table, as we say, and how to really develop the, the courage, the conviction, and sometimes just the interrupting skills to get mm-hmm. right in there and make a point. Mm-hmm. Um, so any advice that you have besides what you've said for leaders in this profession and in particular women? Well, I think that, um, you know, I, I would say one thing that is interesting. I went back to my high school a long time ago, actually, um, and it was me and a woman from the FBI and a woman from art history. And we were all up front talking about what we'd done. And I think that 
um, I think there's almost like this automatic assumption that that among girls that the financial industry is all about math and you know it's just you know it's just really really um, I would say dry. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is not at all like that. I mean, certainly. Obviously, analytical skills that you learn in math and certainly quantitative skills in my, perfect, my particular profession are necessary for the job, but it's really about everything you learn in school. I mean, it's about, you know, writing and it's about verbal articulation and it's about you use all of your skills in the financial industry um, that, you've, that you've taken away from school. And I do think that it's almost like a, people feel that there's like this invisible barrier to coming into the industry to begin with. And I, I would love to see um, that, you know, that barrier disappear over time. Um, but, but generally, I think that, you know, that idea of finding your voice is really important regardless of what profession you're in. And being able to, as you said, in, interrupt sometimes because if you wait to be invited to speak in a roundtable discussion about a topic, you're never going to speak up because no one's going to invite you in to have an opinion. You have to kind of make sure that if you have something to say, that you say it and you find the opportunity to do it. Um, so I think that's great advice, um, Kate, because I think that's critical to the to succeeding. Well, it's good to hear. It's good to hear you talk about this, and certainly you have so much experience to to offer people. Um, you know, we're going to take a break again in just a second, but I want to just ask you um, really quickly. You know, um, what does a typical week look like for you, Adina? We have about a minute. Um, I spend about half my time managing people and process internally because as CFO, a big part of my role is an operational role within the firm. I spend about another half of my time really focusing on external. So I'm responsible for now for investor relations, responsible for projecting the firm and the financials of the firm externally and looking at how we communicate that. And so that's almost half, I would say almost half my job at this point. Um, so, and then, and then another element of that is the strategic element of driving the company forward. So I think it's kind of operational half and strategic and external communications about half. Interesting. Well, you know, when we come back from this break, I want to ask you about time and how you manage it because I know your job is huge and I know that most of the people I work with are struggling to make one day fit into it everything that we need. So I'm I'm curious about how someone like you approaches that. This is Kate Ebner. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life and Adina Friedman and I will be right back. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 
866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. This is Kate Ebner. I'm talking today with Adina Friedman, CFO of the Carlisle Group. Adina and I are talking about leadership. We're talking about women in leadership, and we're talking about how to how to be effective, how to really make a contribution when you're sitting in a meeting, when you're um, striving to really bring value to the world that you're working in. Um, Adina, we were talking before the break about uh, voice, bringing voice to the table. We also started to talk about time and, and how you're, how does a, what does a week entail for you? And I can, I could hear in the way you were talking about that, that you have kind of a strategy about time. So <laughs> half my time goes to this, half my time goes to that, you know, and that makes me want to know more about how you think about and how you manage a day, a week, you know, what are your, what are your strategies around getting everything done that you need to do in the available time? Sure. Well, one thing I do do, and I, maybe it's overstructuring it, but I do try to have a one-on-one with each of my direct reports, um, at least every other week, but most of the time every week. Um, and it can be a half an hour. It's not usually that long. Um, and then we can always add time for special topics. But you do need to give your people direction. Um, and they, they kind of, they really, um, they, they crave it in a way. I mean, they want to make sure that they're doing what they need to be doing, but you also need to empower them. So you give them a half an hour of your time to make sure that they're focusing on the right things or to share, um, developments or activities within the firm and make sure that they understand what the priorities are. And then you empower them and say, okay, off you go. <laughs> Um, and so that's, that's one thing I do do. And it, I have actually at the current time, 11 direct reports, which is a fair number. Um, but I do try to make sure that depending on what group they're overseeing, that I have at least a, a biweekly, if not a weekly session with them. So that's the first thing. And that does take up a fair amount of time. Um, uh-huh. the, sec- the second thing I do is I do, um, on a biweekly basis, um, a group group meeting with all my direct reports plus others because I want them to talk amongst themselves because if you really treat everyone in a siloed manner, then they won't work together. And it is important that they actually find a way to air out issues and discuss what they're doing so that everyone's fully aware because I can't be the one who's constantly uh, communicating that to everyone. So, um, so we do have a biweekly management meeting um, with my direct reports and others. And then... Um, on an, you know, kind of on my peer level, we have a weekly operating committee meeting with all of the leaders, uh, the operational leaders within Carlisle. Um, and then on a biweekly basis, we have what we call a management committee meeting, which with the three founders as well as the COO and myself of Carlisle. So we do a lot of this kind of upward communication and downward communication. I think that, um, outside of that, which, you know, takes up a fair amount of time, um, then I work on special projects and um, anything that I need specifically to get involved with, uh, whether it's obviously the IPO took up a lot of time and involvement, um, developing out the investor relations um, function is taking some time now because it's new, um, and just making sure that I'm focused on the right priority activities that are driving change within the firm or, or progress within the firm. Um, in my at NASDAQ, I also was responsible for M&A, all of the um, acquisition-related activities, and those tended to be the special projects that really took up a, a lot of time. Um, and they can be, you know, the, the, the issue with, with M&A is it's very episodic. It's a little unpredictable. It can start and stop. 
Um, and so you have to kind of get used to that unpredictability. If you're, if you're kind of coming to work expecting to do, to know what your day is going to look like, M&A is not really for you. <laughs> but, but if you can get used to unpredictability, then, and, and make sure that you have sufficient time for that, plus the, the day-to-day operations, I think you'll find that it's time management's okay. It, it works pretty well. And, you know, do you wake up in the morning knowing here's what I've got to get to do today or these are the most important things? Do you just keep tracking back to those priorities? Um, I do. Um, I, I definitely like to be able to think about that as I'm on my way to work. Um, I also have a kind of a general philosophy that I should add value every day. And that's not always possible, but you should at least go to work thinking I'm going to add value today and tomorrow and the next day. Um, and I think that that can be just baby steps towards specific projects you're managing, or it can be making a breakthrough as a manager with a person on your group, or it can be some major accomplishment. Um, but I do think that it's really important to feel that you're adding value to the firm every day. Otherwise, you have to sit there and question why you're there, honestly. Yes, you do. You know, listening to you talk about this, I'm glad you used that word philosophy because I think that's what I was really trying to draw out of you is what is this philosophy that you have? You know, clearly you have one. You know, you have strategies, you have philosophy, you have a a way of looking at things and making decisions. And probably these are things you take for granted because you're doing them every day and have evolved them over time. But I think they're quite distinct. And for those who are listening, it's uh, for listeners, I really want to sort of invite you to pay attention to not just what Adina does, but actually the mindset that she's bringing with her about work and about how she's contributing. Because I think those two things go together. You know, the mindset, that you bring. I want to add value every day. And then how you execute on that and how you stay true to the priorities. So really glad that you shared that with us. Thank you. Sure. Um, you know, Adina, I want to uh, ask you, you've, you've had so many major achievements in your professional life, but I'd love for you to just tell a, a story to us about something you've done um, professionally that was really challenging and that gave you a lot of satisfaction. You know, I've been really lucky because I've had actually a lot of interesting um, opportunities throughout my career, but I think in terms of things that really defined me a bit, um, there were two major projects, but I'll, I'll go through one, um, and it was the acquisition of INET with, when I was at NASDAQ because of the fact it was my large, you know, my my second acquisition as at the head of strategy at NASDAQ, but the first major acquisition. And it was extremely complex because it was a, it was almost like a three-way deal where NASDAQ was buying the Holdco and INET was a piece of that Holdco called Instanet. And then we were immediately doing a back-to-back transaction where we were selling off the, uh, the parent and we were just keeping the subsidiary called INET. So it was a very complex deal and it also involved bringing in, ironically, private equity investors into NASDAQ um, and they were in fact buying that parent entity. So it was a very, very complex deal. Um, it was a large deal for NASDAQ at the time at a, around $900 million. And it was a defining deal in terms of NASDAQ's future in terms of its technology and what was running the market. So it was really a critical, a critical um, acquisition for us. And what was great about it is that the CEO essentially empowered me in a, in a huge way. I mean, I had only done one deal before, but he basically said, Adina, you're just there to get this done. And of course he was involved. He's very involved as a CEO. I mean, he was very involved in every single major point, but he allowed me to take that ball down the road for a long, you know, a lot 
and I would come back to him and he would get involved whenever I needed him, but he was, he was allowing me to really drive that deal forward. And, um, it ended with a double all-nighter in a law firm where we walked in on a Wednesday and we walked out on a Friday. Um, and, um, but it was really just, uh, it was fun and it was, it was fascinating. And, and it, I think it changed the course of the firm. Um, I think Nasdaq's a very different place now with that acquisition. Um, so I, it was a great accomplishment and, um, I certainly felt empowered and I, I learned as a manager how important it is or as a leader to empower your people. If you got to hire really smart people, people who are smarter than you are, and if you can put them into the right roles, um, then that in and get them focused on the right things, let them go, and and they'll accomplish a lot more than you could ever accomplish. Um, and so I think that's what I learned. I mean, obviously, I don't think I'm at all any more intelligent than Bob, but I was able to focus on something very discreetly, and it allowed, you know, whereas he had to focus on running the whole firm. So it allowed me, and as long as he empowered me, I was able to get it done. That is a, this is a great example. You really, you really lived it and learned from it. And I, I, I think that's a wonderful message to be giving people. Um, you know, we are up against another break in a moment here, but I'd love before we do that for you to just tell us what did it mean to you? Like on a personal level to have accomplished that, the two double all nighters <laughs> back to back. Like what, what was it like the next day? You know, what was your, what did you say to yourself? Well, it was interesting because as the deal was being announced, we did a press conference and I was so exhausted, but just so happy sitting there listening to the CEO of Instanet and the CEO of NASDAQ. Um, and I believe it was the founder of, of uh, Silver Lake, a private equity firm and, and H&F as well. Just listening to them talk about the deal and, and just sitting in the background, knowing that that had been what I had, I had accomplished for the firm. It was just an incredible sense of self, um, satisfaction. And then the next day after I'd actually gotten some sleep, <laughs> I remember sitting watching my son play baseball and just feel like I was allowed to relax that day. You know, I had worked so hard that I had deserved that day of relaxation. I didn't have to think about anything other than just watching my son play baseball. And it was, it was actually a wonderful, you know, sunny day. And I just laid on a blanket and just enjoyed my son. It was really a really, a really satisfying moment. That is a that is an incredible story to tell and to tell it the way you did. By the way, only a woman could tell that story that way. <laughs> so thank you very much for that. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Adina Friedman, and I'm Kate Ebner. This is Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. 
We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. This is Kate Ebner. Thank you for joining me today. My guest is Adina Friedman, who is the Chief Financial Officer of the Carlisle Group. Uh, Adina and I have been having a fascinating conversation, actually, about uh, a leadership perspective that Adina is really bringing to us that I hope all of us are, are learning from. I know that I am. Um, Adina, as we talk today, I want to bring us back around to um, the last part of our conversation and also to the topic of vision. And it strikes me as you were describing that deal that you worked on and how important it was to the future of the NASDAQ and the, you know, the, the future of um, the financial sector, actually. You were looking into that future. You were creating that future by executing on that deal. And as you know, vision is all about looking to the future, being able to see a desirable future that you want to create. And so I, I love it that you shared that story. And I think it's a perfect uh, bridge to my question, which is, what's your vision as a leader? Well, I guess, um, I guess my experience is always in, is in a single industry. So I'm going to stick with the financial industry and looking at a vision for the financial industry. And I think my vision for the financial industry is to get back to basics, um, to, rediscover our moral center and to remind ourselves and to act in every way as a client-facing, client-oriented industry. Um, I feel that, unfortunately, um, I think that there have been too many opportunities in the past for the financial industry to veer off of that path. Um, and part of the reason why I love working here at Carlisle is that we are all about the client. Everything we do is oriented towards the client. The moral center of this firm is incredibly strong. Um, and it's really been um, a wonderful um, uh, environment to work in. But as I look at the broader industry and really more in the banking side, I feel that there have been opportunities for people to veer away from reminding themselves of who the client is and reminding themselves of why they're there. Um, and so my vision is for for the financial industry, instead of through the acts of regulation, but really through the act of self-reflection, make a determination that they're going to kind of get back to basics. And instead of really focusing on financial engineering and uh, using their creativity to um, for short-term gain, use the creativity, because there's a lot of creativity within the financial industry, but use that creativity and, the, and that... Um, um, and, and the focus on, on serving the clients and, and making sure that they're creating long-term wealth for, for, the comp- for the country. And I do think the financial industry is responsible for creating long-term wealth for the country. Um, and so, therefore, I think my vision is for the industry to um, have that moment of self-reflection and, uh, and, and make sure that they kind of are always looking at the moral center. Um, and so I guess that's what I'd like to, to see more broadly. Um, within uh, this firm, I feel that it's incredibly grounded on that and same with at NASDAQ. So I, I never, ever, ever felt that I, I had to, to, to make a change or steer the, steer the firm in any different way. But I think just outside of, of where I've worked, I think that it's, it's, um, it's something that the industry should, should spend some time really focusing on. 
I think it also starts with education. Um, I know that business ethics has become much more a part of the curriculum in business school, um, but I think that it's got to be something that's not just a, a class. It's something that's taught in every class, every course along the way. Is that how I was going to ask you, actually, you know, how do we go about doing that? How do we create that um, that that industry-wide reflection that allows people to kind of claim leadership and ownership of solutions that are based on a moral center? Um, how, do, how does that actually happen? You mentioned one idea, which is the teaching ethics in every class in business schools. Um, what else? How else could that happen? You know, it's honestly a very um, complex uh, question, really, because there's so many elements to that. And, you know, the financial industry is founded on the basis of people. They are the engine of the financial industry. There's no factory. There's no machine machinery. It's all based on the foundation of people and people fueling the industry, their creativity, their brains, their capabilities fueling the industry. Um, and therefore, you have to be extremely selective in who those people are. <laughs> um, and so it's certainly, you can educate people about ethics, but you, honestly, I don't think you can teach someone to be an ethical person if they're not. So I think that it's something where you can remind people of the ethics that they have already inside them, but you do ought to make sure that upon selecting someone to join the firm that they just have a very strong ethical center, and I think you can do that through interviews and just knowing their actions in the past. But so you first of all to select the right people, and I think then it's create it's a culture that's created within each of the firms that the key firms that drive the industry. And, you know, Beyond that, people are going to say, well, there's the incentive structures and there's regulation and there's all sorts of other elements. I'm, I'm oversimplifying it for, for sure. Um, but I, I think that you have to start with selecting the right people and making sure that culturally you're reminding them every day of what they're there to do. Um, and it is to serve the client. And what does that actually mean? And, and spend time on that as part of, part of the, um, the overall culture of the firm. You know, thank you for sharing that vision. That's, I think, a vision we all need to hear and need to hear from somebody in the financial industry who, um, who can speak with conviction about it and whose experience has been quite different than what we're too often hearing on the news. You know, as I'm thinking about this point about ethics, um, it, it occurs to me that it's something that we as a nation need to tackle in our families, right? So where, where mm-hmm. do we learn, learn our ethics? We actually begin at home and, then, as you said, in the schools, you know, education, um, then who we hire, maybe, and how we train them, right. how we promote them, and how we hold them accountable, and yep. mm-hmm. what we reward. You know, it's a sort of a systemic issue, set of issues. Um, as it you, is. As you, I mean, certainly yeah. the incentive structures are also responsible for that, but I'd like to think that, you know, you're not just motivated by monetary incentives, you're motivated by your own, your own moral center. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'd love to ask you, um, as we come to the end of our time together, Adina, who is your inspiration? Who inspires you? Um, honestly, my parents inspire me. Um, and my husband inspires me. I, I, I think that, um, I think that family is everything. Um, my mom was, um, a stay at home mom until I was nine and then went back to law school and became a very successful lawyer, um, was the chairman of the Walters Art Gallery. And my, my, my father was, um, the chief investment officer at Tierra Price. And so looking at whether it's, um, morally, they certainly inspired me, um, in terms of driving me, um, they inspired me, um, in terms of always helping me set my course right. 
um, whether it's as a young person or even as an adult, I, I always go to them for career advice or, you know, just general um, advice on how to how to navigate through the world. And I think that my husband's the same way. He's just my center and my rock, and um, he, he keeps me focused and grounded and, and I frankly make sure I have fun in life because you can get kind of a really serious about things. So he makes sure that, that my life has balance and um, that I'm focused on the right things, honestly. So I would say they're my inspiration. Well, I've, uh, thank you for sharing that. I know that that's a, I, d- I do know from knowing you a little bit that that absolutely is your inspiration and it's, it's really wonderful to hear you talk about that. You know, I feel listening to you this hour that you've, You've given us a lot of food for thought and some things that we can really practice and implement in our lives as well as, again, that, that mindset, that perspective that's both centered and very aspirational, Adina. You're, you're, <laughs> you've, you've gone for the big things and you've done the hard things and, and yet you have this positivity about you that's just, you know, truly inspiring to me actually to hear. And, you know, you had one story I want to close with. And, and uh, you know, this was when we were preparing for this conversation on air. I was asking you, you know, early on in your career, what do you think it was that made you stand out from others that really got set you on your path? And would you mind just sharing that story with us? With that sure. point of view? Yeah, I, I think that the most important thing is the power of saying yes. <laughs> I think that... um I found that when I was really early in my career, I was just getting started. Um, I was an eager beaver. And um, I found that um, by saying yes, um, you know, I... My my boss would come to me and say, "Well, can you, Adina? Can you do this?" And the answer was yes. If I could do it, I I would be able to do it. And I kind of never shied away from a yes, even if I thought, "Oh my gosh, how am I going to get that done?" <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think that it's hard sometimes. I I do hear that sometimes women tend to have a hard time finding those boundaries, and they do tend to say yes, and then they get overwhelmed. But but at the same time, I think it what happened there was that I was saying yes to projects and then they real and I would find a way to get it done and then they'd say, Wow, she did that pretty well. Um, let's give her the next challenge. And 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 so then the challenges started coming to me and the opportunities started coming my way because I was willing to to, to say yes. I was willing to, to get things done. Um and um and I, I do have to say I think that was absolutely positively the reason why I moved up the firm early on in my career. Um in addition to probably getting it done pretty well. And I think that um I think that as I moved up you do start to have to kind of define your role a little bit more clearly and define what you're there to do. But early on, it's all about being a contributor and being someone who, you know, the the go-to person. And it makes a huge difference, I think, um, in your early career. Thank you very much, Adina. That's the power of saying yes. Thank you so much for joining us today. And Adina, thank you for being with me in this hour. Thank you very much, Kate. Have a great week. You too. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. 